You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Edlard Lowe in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, it has been the year for NVIDIA. AI stocks and lofty valuations. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq 100 index is set for its best year in over a decade. Can tech continue its golden era going into 2024? Plus, it's a must for Musk. A San Francisco federal judge has signaled that Elon Musk must testify in the SEC Twitter stock probe. We're going to have all the details. And the outlook for electric vehicles isn't quite as bright as it was six months ago. And the US might be to blame. We talk about how GM, Ford and Tesla contribute to the EV sales setback. So we're going to have a big focus in this show today on electric vehicles and the outlook for next year because it's changing. This is Friday session. Tesla's higher half a percentage point. The other names in the red. GM is cutting 1,300 workers across two factories in Michigan. But what all of these stocks have in common, well, the top three at least, is that they're all on track for six straight weeks of weekly gains. In GM's case, that's the best run of weekly gains going back to December 2014. I bring that up because there's been so much negative news, all the data about revised outlooks for next year, Cruise, the autonomous driving unit of GM being in trouble, Tesla's autopilot probe and the recall, soft recall and software update this week. But if you extrapolate out, these EV stocks have been on a tear at the same time as the S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100 are on their longest and best streaks in a decade. Then there's NVIDIA. I think NVIDIA is still the big focus for this market. The gain is more than 230% year to date. The news in Friday session was a block trade of more than a billion dollars on the stock that traded at a pretty lofty level seems to be having an impact on the market but again 236 percent gain year to date it has been a big contributing factor to the rally that we've seen in the nasdaq 100 and the s p 500 and the question is well what happens if nvidia just stops and its momentum halts could it would it should it nancy curtin is the person to be asking global cio of altai tiedemann global A lot of money under management, a lot of working through what has been decades of whether we see money and exuberance into tech or not. From your perspective, are the valuations of a name like NVIDIA rational at this moment? 
Look, Caroline, they certainly discount a lot, that's for sure, at more than 30 times earnings on average. Uh, and I think one of the things we're seeing now is competition to NVIDIA. Uh, you know, when a company has an 85% monopoly, uh, so their profits go up seven times in a year uh, and is facing a trillion dollar market opportunity, we should expect competition. And, I, and so far, I think, when we look at what Intel uh, and AMD have brought to the table from a hardware perspective, it looks pleasing. Uh, but NVIDIA has quite a competitive moat in terms of CUDA, software, developer tools, etc. So, you know, there is a lot to go for in Gen AI. And uh, don't, be, uh, don't be so quick uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to put down uh, these valuations. Nancy, we have covered that competition so deeply on the program in the last two weeks, starting with AMD's MI300X. I was there on the ground with Lisa Sue 24 hours ago. You have Intel talking about Gaudi 3. What is the investment strategy? Do you just pick one of those names, go with it, or do you need to have all three in the portfolio? Look, I think you're going to have to see how this evolves. Remember, uh, neither of these chips are available at the moment. So if you're a company building a Gen AI application, uh, it's still H100. It's still the NVIDIA chip. Uh, and by the way, NVIDIA is not going to stand still here. Uh, you know, they've got uh, things on the horizon, a very aggressive product launch as we head into 24 and 25, uh, you know, B100, aka Blackwell. Uh, so, you know, let's not not, uh, let's not write off the NVIDIA advantage. But as I said, uh, their software ecosystem, CUDA in particular, uh, is super powerful for NVIDIA. Moving away from perhaps the picks and the shovels, the chips, to actually who are building the models, who's applying the models most efficiently, it's been all about Microsoft to a certain degree. And starting to be Alphabet. Do you think that we need to broaden our perspective there as well, how we're starting to see generative AI impact the business models? Do you know, I think there was a lot of criticism of Gemini, which of course was Google's launch around two weeks ago, uh, around latency issues, et cetera. Okay, put that aside, I think it misses the point. What we saw with Google was multimodal. I mean, that interaction had inference, it had text, it had image, uh, it had translation, it had coding all at once. So I think it gives you a future image of where this gen AI is going. As you watch that silly thing with the, the guitar and the duck, do see it if you haven't seen it. Uh, you know, you need to think about the applications in financial services, in healthcare, uh, in the industrial sector. This is absolutely huge. And you know, I reckon as I was watching it, Caroline, that you know, maybe 26, 27, maybe 28, uh, we're going to look at the mouse, the keyboard, I don't know, what are those things? Like ancient history, prehistoric stuff, right? Because you're going to be able to interact with the computer in a completely different way and the coding language is going to be English. Right. So lots of interesting implications. Uh, Nancy, we're thoroughly enjoying this conversation. One of the things I was so interested about you is earlier in your career, you ran venture capital desks, private equity desks. And I wonder if that changes your approach as a CIO when you look across public equities. Are you kind of conscious of what's happening upstream in some of the earlier stage companies who might benefit from the, the, what Caroline and I call the picks and shovels, right? The H100s underpinning the work in the R&D. 
You know, absolutely. So, you know, we have investments in both public and private markets. And on the private side, I want to share with you a snippet. One of our private equity managers, now we're talking about buyout, uh, reports that every single one of their companies is using Gen AI in some form. And they are seeing productivity enhancements of 30 to 40%. That's huge, okay? And that's in private equity buyout. And the venture side, our managers are reporting enormously interesting applications, disruptive business models, horizontal uses of Gen AI, vertical uses of Gen AI. So there is so much more uh, to come here. We're aware of what's going on with the infrastructure layer, uh, as you mentioned, but once we get past that 24 and into 25, expect a whole host of disruptive uh, business models. And more importantly, business applications. We're going to go to work and this will be embedded in business processes and we're still early in that journey uh, so far this year. So boy, when you're thinking about allocating and as global CIO of what is $67 billion worth of money, where do you go private versus public? Where do you think the valuations are more sustainable? Where has the pain been felt necessarily so already? So first of all, everything we do is customized to clients. And so it has to meet their return, their risk, their liquidity preference, because obviously private equity and venture capital come with a longer term time horizon. So it has to be appropriate to client circumstance. But having said that, we, we do recommend for those clients that it's appropriate to have their foot in both the public and the private markets. Remember, the public markets today in the United States, 30% of the index is seven companies. Mm -hmm. Pretty concentrated, pretty high correlated to those seven stocks, et cetera, although we think the other 493 represent some good value here. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you're able to play a whole host of different parts of the economy, different parts uh, of companies, disruptive companies, core businesses. Remember, there's 40,000 uh, so-called private companies in the States today. Uh, you know, what do we have? 1,500 public companies. So you can see you're not really accessing the full part of the economy. So again, for clients where it's appropriate. Uh, we do look like both public and private markets, and we do believe that the long-term return from private equity, uh, buyout, growth, and venture can be quite substantial. Do come back. It's been great to have you on, Nancy. Thank, thank you. you so much. Nancy Curtin of LT Tiedemann Global. We thank her. Meanwhile, coming up, Elon Musk's potential AI dominance. We're going to stick on the AI theme and talk about X's Grok. How it might overtake ChatGPT? This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Musk's Grok AI platform might actually be a pretty major contender in the battle for chatbot dominance. Bloomberg's Seth Thiegman joins us now to explain what is the, perhaps its outperformance in an area of real-time news. How's it going? Yeah, that's right. I think that when this thing first launched, no one wanted to take it seriously. I mean, a lot of the promotion around this was that it was irreverent, profane. If you looked on the Twitter account, they set up for its highlighted post. It was mostly making bad jokes about how babies are born. But when we, <laughs> but it rolled out more broadly this week to anyone willing to pay $16 to X for a premium account, which is certainly a right. limiting factor for how big it'll get. And when we looked at it, we saw that it's quite good for real-time news. It has access to Twitter's real-time pipeline of data. And Twitter has, or I should keep saying X has cracked down on access to that data for other companies. So it's kind of unique at this point. So when we asked it to summarize whether the climate debates in Dubai or uh, looking at OpenAI's data licensing partnerships, um, we saw that it was more accurate uh, and up right. to time than ChatGPT and Bard. Uh, so Seth, I asked a very basic question on Grok this morning. <laughs> Who am I? Who is Ed Ludlow? And Grok does have a more contemporaneous up-to-date answer than ChatGPT. And ChatGPT basically said, my data is relevant as of Jan 2022. Make sure you actually go and check an original source. But it doesn't get it all right. Because when I asked it to tell me about Bloomberg technology, it told me that Emily Chang, dear friend, by the way, is still the host along with Corey Johnson. That's pretty out of date. The point is, this is about the, 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 the how recent the data it was trained on is, right? That's right. And I'm kicking myself for not asking it who Ed Lowe is, but I'm glad that you got to that question. <laughs> I think the important thing to keep in mind here at a high level is that there's a real arms race going on right now, just not just for how chatbots perform day to day, but how they can access and answer questions in real time. It's so central to Google and to Microsoft in particular to be able to surface real time information. And what we're seeing is that if you're built on top of a social media platform, you have a better shot at that. The flip side, as you're pointing to, is that they're surfacing content from tweets and accounts that may not be as authoritative, so that's the problem. Um, Seth Fugman, who leads our AI coverage as editor, and as we saw in that clip, Linda Yaccarino actually replied to my post saying, Grok for the win, but then she didn't <laughs> see the post where it gave a wrong answer. We keep going. Bloomberg, Seth Feigman, thank you so much. Okay, another story in Elon Musk's world. A San Francisco judge has signaled that Musk must testify about his Twitter stock purchases ahead of the company buyout last year. This is part of an SEC investigation. And joining us now is Bloomberg's Austin Weinstein in Washington. The judge is basically saying, if you two can't sort out getting together and talking, then I will intervene. Yeah, the judge made it pretty clear that... She seemed that to be in the position that she was going to weigh in favor of the SEC here in enforcing their subpoena. It's very rare for the SEC to get a no-show on its subpoena, like Elon did earlier this year. It's very rare for them to sue to enforce that subpoena, and it's even more rare for the SEC to lose in court on a bid to enforce a subpoena. Okay, so chances 
perhaps aren't on his side for this. He does feel, though, that he's already answered an awful lot of questions, not once but twice. Is there any sort of, well, context to this where we've seen people have to come in and give evidence time and time and time again? There's a lot of situations when in an SEC investigation, they ask more questions. The facts of this investigation, which is one of a number into Elon Musk's companies, uh, go back to his purchase of Twitter mm -hmm. when he bought up a large stake when the company was private. And so they interviewed him close to his purchase of Twitter. And then earlier this year, they did their investigation. They talked to a whole lot of people. And they wanted to come back to Elon and say, hey, we have some more questions. Let's sit down and have a conversation and get your testimony here. And basically, the SEC said that he played uh, you know, catch me if you can and tried to play fast and loose with the location and then move the date. And the SEC just kind of got sick of it. But it's fairly normal for them to go back to a, what they would think is a key witness, you know, the CEO, the guy who bought the company eventually, and ask some more questions after doing their investigation. Meanwhile, Musk currently feeling that it's harassment by the SEC, according to a filing. Austin Weinstein, we thank you so much for the background on all of that. Time for Talking Tech. And first up in the news, Crew Trim, an AI startup founded by Ola founder Bavish Agarwal has launched India's first multilingual LLM, which can generate text in 10 Indian languages. The startup is also developing data centers and aims to create servers and supercomputers for an AI ecosystem. And Google is changing its maps tools so that the company no longer has access to users' individual location histories. This effectively cuts off its ability to respond to law enforcement warrants that ask for data on everyone who is in the vicinity of a crime. Plus, an examination of FDA records shows the administration is doing little to cut down on misleading drug claims on social media, despite having the power to oversee prescription drug marketing. For decades, the FDA has regulated advertising on television, radio, and in magazines. It released guidelines for social media in 2014, but since then, it's done little to regulate influence influencers sorry, who may or may not have had direct ties to those manufacturers. Caroline. Yeah, that's an interesting one, and we want to broaden that sort of a conversation and think about how the FTC is tackling it, because it's actually issued a warning and some letters to beverage companies and influencers on potential violations of the FTC Act in their social posts on Instagram and TikTok, where they aren't, is accused, adequately disclosing their payment by the industry, and as they promote the safety of, in particular, artificial sweetener or the consumption of sugar-containing products, for example. Joining us to discuss all of this and what regulation could, in fact, becoming their way when it comes to AI and influencing is Mary Engel. She's the former director of the Division of Advertising Practices at the FTC, currently serving as a senior vice president for the policy at Triple B, that's BBB National Programs. Mary, it's a really interesting one. What weren't influencers doing? Because they seem to be saying hashtag ad or sponsor, but is that not enough in this context? Yeah, it's really interesting what the FTC was saying here, that it wasn't enough, even if you had a big, bold ad or sponsor disclaimer on your post, because it wasn't clear in this case who the sponsor was. Now, typically, a brand product will appear in a post, so you know who it is. But in this case, they were talking about sugar, uh, artificial sweeteners, aspartame, and the FTC said, look, consumers don't know who the sponsor is, so you've got to say who that is. 
Okay, so more disclosure on ultimately whether a beverage company is behind your post and what's led you to do the posting. How ultimately is the FTC and others able to keep a track of this? How are we going to be monitoring? Is it up to individual consumers to be saying that this influencer hasn't been clear and or are they going to adopt uses of AI for this sort of program? Uh, that's a good question. I, I can see I could see the FTC uh, adopting AI to kind of s- scour uh, social media for posts, but typically, absolutely, the FTC will pay attention if consumers are complaining that there aren't disclosures. Um, a lot of times, um, it'll be a media report, and I think in this case it was. The Washington Post did a report on how these influencers were not properly disclosing. What ends up being the stick? in this particular example? Is it fines? Is it, what, what does the FTC end up exerting? Yeah, so in this case, the FTC sent warning letters to all these influencers and to the American Beverage Association and Canadian Sugar Institute and said, here, look, this is what you should be doing. Here's what you didn't do it right. And put and gave them notice of a penalty, they're a penalty offense authority, which means that the FTC would have the ability to fine or impose civil penalties if there are future violations. And say I'm the corporate coming to you who, you know, they haven't always got the most fine detailed control over an influencer. How are they meant to ensure that the way in which their messaging is going out and the influences they used to work with are abiding by new FTC regulation? So there are three things they should do. First is they should have written policies, and the policy should be pretty detailed. Don't just say comply with the FTC's endorsement guides. Say that, but also highlight the important provisions that are that are. Uh, important for influencers like clear and conspicuous disclosures and explain what that means, things like don't rely on platform disclosures. And then second, have an active monitoring program. Periodically review what your influencers are posting to make sure that they're doing it right. And then third, if they're not doing it right, um, warn them and then ultimately don't use them anymore if they insist upon posting without doing proper disclosures. Meanwhile, of course, the FTC has been busy, to say the least, and they are trying to wrap their hands around ultimately relationships between, for example, OpenAI and Microsoft and the way in which consumers are going to be protected in this new age of artificial intelligence. How have you been looking at that as a new area of focus and concern? Yeah, so absolutely, there's an opportunity here for responsible businesses to get ahead of regulation and come together and to exercise independent industry self-regulation. And and what I mean by that is to establish clear standards um, with monitoring and public reporting and to comply with those standards. Industry has a good idea of what the government is looking for right now. It's going to take some time for there to be legislation or regulation, and there's a real opportunity for businesses to show leadership by engaging in um, robust industry self-regulation with accountability. And there's got to be a third party to hold them accountable to complying with their standards. We don't want companies to grade their own homework, so we need a third party to oversee compliance. And is that what BBB National Programs ends up being? Or where at the moment have companies turned to for this sort of compliance ahead of regulation becoming formal? 
Absolutely. So BBB National Programs, we're a nonprofit that promotes marketplace trust by providing those sorts of independent, third-party, self-regulatory and accountability programs in all sorts of different industries, advertising, privacy. And earlier this year, we released principles and protocols for the ethical use of AI in hiring and recruiting. We worked with about a dozen and a half large employers to come up with uh, principles for here is how to use AI ethically um, to mitigate bias and to actually promote inclusion in the workforce, knowing that eventually government may regulate there, but there's lots companies can and should be doing even before that time. And look, New York already in many ways regulating yes, how AI and- is applied to the world of work. We thank you so much, Mary Engel. That's really right. great to have you. BBB National Programs, of course, formerly at the FTC itself. Ed, what have you got? NASDAQ 100 has taken its year-to-date gain beyond 50%, now at 52% for the year. There are so many superlatives. This is the eighth street straight week of weekly gains on the Nasdaq 100, uh, longest streak of weekly gains going back to July of 2021. The S&P 500, of course, also outperforming. Lots of moves into the technology sector. And as we discussed earlier in the show, there are a few names that are driving that, NVIDIA being one. What's interesting is that some of the moves in some corners of the technology sector, if you want to call it that, are at odds with the news flow. And that's why we're looking so closely at the EV makers. Many of the legacy OEMs, GM and Ford, for example, but also Tesla, are on track for their sixth straight week of weekly gains. In GM's case, that's the best run of weekly gains going back to December 2014. But the news flow has been so negative. Think about GM overnight cutting 1,300 jobs across two plants in Michigan, some of those relating to EVs. In the Orion plant, for example, Chevy Bolt was due to be the place where the electric pickups are coming 2025. Tesla, the autopilot recall, soft recall and software update this week, not really any slowing down of the momentum behind these names. It's interesting. And then there's the outlook for this next year, which doesn't look as bright. It doesn't. And let's dig into some of the outlooks that we're getting from our own internal analysis, because we're right. The EV outlook is just not where it was six months ago. And the U.S. seems to be largely to blame. Now, there's this overarching takeaway from Bloomberg NES's latest electrified transport market outlook. It's got three companies in particular that are worth bearing in mind for... Well, much of the culpability. GM, Ford, Tesla. Let's dig into really what the statistics are telling us. Bloomberg's Craig Trudell is staying late for us in London to talk it through. And why is suddenly the exuberance dialing back in how much demand there is for EVs? Yeah, I I think this is a very different case for these three companies where you can sort of put GM and Ford together in that, you know, in BNF's words, they're they're lacking in ambition. And I think I would add to that sort of lacking in execution. They are sort of dialing back their ambitions uh, because they, you know, set these really, uh, you know, ambitious targets for EV sales that just have not come to pass. And I think there's there's been some, you know, sort of self-inflicted wounds here and, and mistakes that they've made with GM struggling to ramp up the Ultium platform that was going to underpin its new EVs. Uh, Ford, I think, you know, kind of cut some corners maybe with the F-150 Lightning to try and get that to market quickly. And then you have a very different story with Tesla where they've been kind of, you know, carrying the water for for the industry in the U.S. at least in terms of, uh, you know, really dominating that market from, from an EV perspective. 
Uh, we're, we're at a point now where they just have not refreshed the lineup enough to where, you know, the Model Y has been out since 2020, the Model 3 since, you know, 2017, 18. Uh, and the Cybertruck is just not going to be a high volume model for them anytime soon. So where is the growth going to come from when you've, you know, for, for years uh, really had some impressive sales of these models, but they're starting to show their age a little bit? I think what's so interesting is you have to think globally about this. So let's dig into that idea that the US is largely responsible for the revision because there are markets around the world, Europe, China, where the data shows a different picture. Just give us the top line. What should we expect for the EV market in 2024 globally? Yeah, I think BNEF is still dialing back uh, globally as well as as we've talked about. You know, the U.S. is where the sort of you know uh, brunt of of the the reductions are coming from, but you are seeing a little bit of dialing back here in Europe. I think that's partly to to do with the fact that you know VW in a in a sort of similar fashion to GM and Ford are having some execution issues. I think it's more so related to their software uh, in their EVs as opposed to the EVs themselves having uh, you know problems with batteries and whatnot. Uh, but you've seen uh, some you know, pulling back of production plans for, for VW. I think in, in uh, China even, uh, it, it's a market that has you know, absolutely dominated on the global stage. Uh, some concerns about the sort of overall strength of, of the economy in China or lack thereof uh, that, that you know, maybe is putting a, a bit of a damper on, on the outlook for 2024. And that's you know, causing BNF to get a little bit more conservative right. in terms of how they're thinking about next year. Uh, it is Friday. Let's end it on a happy note and point out that in the chart we just showed, BNF also expects the first 5 million unit quarter to come by the end of 2024. There is some hope, Craig. We both Craig Trudell, our global autos editor out of London. Thank you so much. There's more to talk about. Let's keep the conversation going with Michelle Krebs, executive analyst at Cox Automotive, which also just published its 2024 auto and EV forecast today. You heard the Bloomberg NEF forecast. Explain to us your forecast for next year? Well, I think our forecast is that we've gone from this really rosy uh, forecast, probably overly ambitious, to reality. Um, and uh, look, for a bigger picture, we don't anticipate overall car sales in the U.S. to go up all that much, maybe 200,000 units next year. So uh, yet we still anticipate that the EV market will uh, increase. Um, we think it'll maybe uh, be around 10% of the total market. It was like 8% this year. But, you know, it's, it's an overall market that's um, uh, kind of stabilizing, too. The other thing is... Uh, you know, we're going to have to start really trying to sell EVs, not just expect people to order them. And therefore, give us your expertise on like a marketing advice now to these companies. Is it about getting over the worry that ultimately you're not going to be able to find the charging unit when you need it, not going to be able to make the miles that you want? Or are we over that as a consumer? Is it more about price point? Is it more about just not really seeing the urgency of switching to EV? We are not over any of that. Um, you know, we we still do not have, the U.S. is a lot bigger than some of the smaller European nations, and so we do not have this expansive um, EV uh, charging infrastructure. It's growing, and it's you know, it's uh, stronger in certain places than it is others. So that still is a huge concern, and that 
that has to be overcome if we're going to have massive EV adoption. Price is an issue, although we are seeing some very nice incentives on um, EVs. Uh, so that then there will be more discounting. About a year ago, they were ten thousand. The average was ten thousand dollars more than it is now. So we will see more price competition, and we will see um, less expensive EVs coming into the market. So that should help too. But we're now going to the mainstream buyer, and that's going to take more education, more um, hand-holding uh, to, to convince people to buy EVs. Uh, Michelle, we'd be grateful for your reaction to two recent and important pieces of news. The first was Ford cutting in half its planned production for the F-150 Lightning in 2024 to a run rate of about 1,600 units a week from 3,200. And then overnight, GM cutting 1,300 jobs, 945 at Orion, where they make, for now, the Chevy Bolt, and in 2025 plan to make the, the pickup. What does that tell you? Well, first of all, on the very different stories. On, on General Motors, we knew this was going to happen. They announced some time ago they were going to end production of the Chevrolet Bolt at the, it's we call it the um, Orion plant here. Um, it, and that ends- I apologize. That's okay. Um, it, it ends next week. Uh, and then they were going to immediately start retooling for the electric pickup trucks but um, they have postponed that a little bit. So they've pushed that more, more back, more into the future. Um, and then there was, there are, they're eliminating the uh, Chevrolet Camaro, which may come back in some different form. So we knew those. Um, the Ford um, uh, Lightning plant, they had expanded that plant, probably got a little too ambitious on their expectations. And as uh, Craig said, some execution problems. Uh, and so they've had to s scale back. They've got um, mounting inventory of the Lightning. Just fascinating. We're always so grateful when we get your decades of experience and expertise, Michelle. We thank you for it. Michelle Krebs, Executive Analyst at Cox Automotive. Have a wonderful weekend. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. 
PearVC, a pre-seed and seed stage venture capital firm based in Menlo Park, is opening Pear Studio SF, a 30,000 square foot space in San Francisco that will serve as a home for tech founders and aspiring entrepreneurs. Pejman Nozad, co-founder and founding managing partner of PearVC, is with me here on set in San Francisco. This is a big commitment. Imagine a big financial commitment to a space that can be home to they're not even founders because in some cases haven't even started a company yet. Why are you doing that? Yes, that's true. So as you mentioned, it's a 30,000 square foot state-of-the-art office here. It's a brand new building with 225 desks and over 20 conference rooms. We're going to host speaker series, workshops, social events, hackathons, and really a platform for founders to learn and grow. But this has been always um, a strategy for us. In fact, our very first office, which we opened in 2013, was a home 2,000 steps away from Stanford University. So we hosted many students there, and they went on and built um, many startups, including a few multi-billion dollars companies. So it's a core strategy for us, and I think um, I'm at the heart of startups. It's easy to see that buildings are empty in San Francisco, but I think quite a bit opposite. I actually think startup ecosystem is boiling, especially at early stages. Well, it's a classic Silicon Valley and indeed classic San Francisco story, right? You only need go down to Hayes Valley and see the laptops that people are working on together in a coffee shop. But you also have some selfish motivation, right, which is that if you have this large body of people through your doors, you get right of first refusal to invest in them. I completely agree. I think we want to see founders before anybody else, and we want to be the first investor before friends and family around. So we're going to, and actually you won't believe that how many calls we got from incredible entrepreneurs that want to be at the office soon. So we are very excited about it. What's interesting is you're supporting them with boot camps, for example. You've also got a female founder circle. How are you laying the groundwork to ensure that we see diversity among those that are building these businesses at this time? Yeah, it's, as you mentioned, it's very important for us, diversity. One of our programs is female founder circles. In fact, every year we select um, 80 to 100 top female engineers who are leaving big tech companies, academia and startups, and wants to start a startup. And uh, it's a free program for 15 weeks. Same concept. We give them office. We give them access to our team. We bring speakers, workshops, and hopefully we can in, invest in these companies. And uh, the key is like when you build a community, you have to give before you get. And we always provide um, many resources before we even start and we build that trust throughout the months that we're working with them. And maybe it's why, of course, you've become some of the top investors in DoorDash and Dropbox and some of the other success stories that companies are eventually going public. I'm interested, Pejman, you're saying you're trying to attract talent that is leaving well, working in engineering for some of the big tech companies. How many people are still leaving? How many people do still want to go and build things at this moment? You know, I've never seen startups ecosystem as vibrant as today. You know, you can hear news about growth stage companies and 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 public market, but I actually think um, the recent development in Gen AI is just allowing entrepreneurs to build product faster and get quicker feedback from um, companies. So I think the product cycle is it's a lot faster than before, and I, I actually see people are coming back to San Francisco from New York, Austin, and Los Angeles. Nobody wants to miss the AI revolution. I, I won't be surprised in the next wave of public companies um, in tech 
they're less than five to seven years old and mm. versus today you see 10 to 20 years old. Right. You know, I, I see some of the companies that they reach $20 million revenue in less than six months. It's just uh, mind-boggling that how fast companies can grow today. At the same time, obviously, there's a lot of hype around AI, so that's a separate conversation. It is, and sadly, we have to get you back for it, but kind of music to some of those LPs is, certainly some of those bankers is as well, if we start to see younger IPOs. We thank you, Peshman Nozad. He's, of course, co-founder and founding managing partner of Pair VC. Thank you. Let's talk about the XPRIZE Foundation, Ed, a nonprofit that funds scientific research. It says it will award, get this, $101 million to anti-aging research. Look, it's a topic that is often dismissed as some sort of unrealistic quest for the fountain of youth, but the award is the largest in the history of the foundation. I'm pleased to welcome Peter Diamandis to the show, founder of XPRIZE and the author of the new book called Longevity, exploring, of course, the practices around longevity and the tech and therapeutics trends around vitality and health span. You join us now, and Peter, talk to us about this isn't just some quest to forever be young or feel young but this is actually also an economic reality that the pressure of aging is becoming gargantuan yeah caroline uh aging is hitting our economy uh, as people growing older the challenge is while we've extended our lifespan we've not extended our health span and so unfortunately the last 10 15 years of people's lives can be expensive it can be a drain on family uh, this isn't only the largest X Prize ever, and we've uh, X Prize we've rolled out 400 million dollars in incentive competitions. Right, not awarding something that was done years ago, asking teams to achieve a goal, and the first person to achieve it wins. It's the largest prize ever in human history. 101 million dollars uh, funded by some incredible benefactors, Hevolution uh, uh, and Chip Wilson. It is asking teams to reverse the ravages of aging. So uh, the team that wins this has to demonstrate a therapeutic that when delivered within one year can give you your muscular strength, your cognitive clarity, and your immune function that you had at least 10 years ago and as many as 20 years ago. We're trying to restore function. So those last 20 years of life are at your peak capability. I, for one, think we can go a lot further, but you know, we're setting a target we think is audacious but achievable. Peter, in, in the XPRIZE's history, which winner do you think has had the biggest impact on a specific piece of technology or a whole industry? Well, that's, that's a, a great question. So we've launched, like I said, $400 million in competitions. Our first one, you know, nearest and dearest to my heart, was the $10 million Ansari XPRIZE for spaceflight. It was a $10 million competition. That. Yeah, and, and it really lit the fuse. I mean, I'm a nine-year-old kid who wants to travel into space, and I want to live longer, healthier, so I can go and get to the moon, get to Mars, get to the asteroid belt, wherever it might be. But it changed the rules and regulations for spaceflight. It brought capital in. It ignited you know, what is now you know, a multi-hundred billion dollar industry. But we've had X prizes for reinventing how we teach kids in the middle of Africa, for pulling, I had a $100 million X prize that uh, got Elon to fund in 2021 for pulling gigatons of carbon out of the atmosphere. We just launched an X prize about nine months ago for wildfires, right? Here in California, we got all these wildfires, but it's insane that we fight these fires the same way we did 20, 50 years ago. This is an X prize asking teams detect a fire at ignition and put it out within 10 minutes autonomously. Right, so this is what we do. We're looking for audacious, achievable goals. And for me, there's no bigger gift than 20 years of additional health you can give somebody. It's the biggest business market. 
Uh, Peter, I was there in New Mexico when Richard Branson went up on VSS Unity. But think yeah. about the time it took to get there from when the initial prize was, was issued. Do you see Incredible. the pace of, commer- but the pace of yeah. commercialization is the question, right? Your, your opinion on that? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, it's, listen, we, unfortunately, we say our work begins when the prize gets won, because you then, when someone's demonstrating a minimally viable product, uh, how do you turn it into an industry? And it's taken the better part of 20 years to get commercial spaceflight going. Um, and so, yeah, it's really, but something's different now. The reason we're doing this $101 million health span prize now is that smaller teams using generative AI, using CRISPR, using gene therapies, using cellular medicine, the ability of small teams to do things that only largest government programs and largest corporations could do before. So we announced this in Riyadh, Saudi, two weeks ago. We have 150 teams competing thus far. My goal is we'll get north of 500 teams or maybe 1,000 teams. Um, And... Yeah. And Peter, where from? What's interesting is you say you announced this in the Middle East. Can you tell mm. us? We've only got a minute left, but where yeah. you're seeing some of the most talent? Where you're seeing really the hunger to fix this problem? Yeah, we're seeing it. It's around the world, right? We will typically get comp- competitors from 50, team, 50 countries around the world, 60, 70, 80, and this competition is showing us where we're going to be in the next seven or eight years. And, and people need to realize there are things you can do right now to keep yourself healthy and young until you get there, right? So that's the reason I, I wrote my book, uh, Longevity, Your Practical Playbook. It's also the reason you know, I started a company called Fountain Life, and these are the most advanced diagnostic companies on the, uh, in the world, right? Yeah. The m- most advanced therapeutics. So you can go now and find out, is there anything going on inside your body you need to know about? Because you can do something about it. People need to look. Our bodies are amazingly good at hiding disease. Well said, XPRIZE founder. Great to have you, Peter Diamandis. We thank you for your time. Pleasure. Meanwhile, look, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. A recap a big Friday and a busy week on the podcast. From San Francisco and New York City, this is Bloomberg Technology. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.